0: I want you to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, and I'm going to read through verse 12 in a moment. But I'm going to lead up to it by reading Acts chapter 9. You can go there if you'd like. I'm going to read it. I was going to try to rehearse this extemporaneously, but I said, hey, I'll read it. I can't improve on what the way Luke described it for sure. So I'm going to read in chapter 9 of Acts, but then we're going to go 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. We're going to examine this passage in, in the 2 Corinthians passage as we're introduced with this matter of human weakness. And God has done something that uh, is astounding. He's taken the weak things of this world to a base, to confound, to embarrass the mighty. Listen to this story. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. i just pause there for a moment and think about it. This is kind of a grotesque thing. He's going to get men and women, breakup families, take them and bind them up and bring them for interrogation and who knows what kind of penalty, possibly stoning. And that what he is going to do is seen now, it came about, that as he journeyed, it's about 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. It would take um, walking, I didn't say anything, but a horseback ride. It would be about a six-day journey. That's arduous in itself. And he gets almost to the city of Damascus. And he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Uh, Pick up on that word light. It plays a role in this passage in 2 Corinthians. A light from heaven flashed around him. Now, just to fill in some things, because this account Paul gave two other times later in the book of Acts when he gave his testimony, what he's actually this light that he encounters, this is the resurrected Christ that he sees. Now, was this exactly the same appearance that John had, is recorded in Revelation 1? It's got to be similar. There's only one resurrected Christ, but here it is. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? That's extraordinary. He uses this word kurios, which is, you know, the New Testament, the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew word Yahweh. Something is supernatural has happened. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. That would be a bit unsettling. <laughs> and Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. It's uh, an interesting statement in view of what we see in Second Corinthians. He could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Ah, all right. Now you can go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. And I'm going to read with some comments on verses 7 through 12. While you're doing that and getting that passage, just uh, you have the advantage now of looking over your shoulder at uh, Paul's conversion account in Acts 9. Paul says here, as he writes to the Corinthians, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. A little explanation as we go along here. What is this treasure? Well, the short answer is it's the New Testament gospel, the New Covenant gospel ministry that has been given to him. And this is the theme of the entire book of 2 Corinthians stated in this. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's 2 Corinthians. If you wanted a Topic, verse, or sentence, there it is. So, actually the but, I should have pointed this out, if you let your eye run back up to verse five, Second Corinthians 4, that when he said, we do not preach ourselves, okay, here's the but, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to, to God and not to us. Now, this power that he focuses upon here is juxtaposed with jars of clay, obviously with great intention, because here is the power of God that overcomes and transcends clay pots. (laughs) It takes clay pots and does things that you would hardly believe it if you were not told. And not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Now, you'll see, as we'll discuss briefly, that there he gives now four of these paradoxical statements, couplets. Look at them. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That is, we're not completely restricted. We're pressured and hemmed in. That's the idea of the word afflicted. It's a word that really means to be in a tight place, between a rock and a hard place, we might say. But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Now, what he's doing with that phrase, death of Jesus, is really summarizing those four paradoxical phrases. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we, live, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He is saying in clear words that his suffering was a badge of his loyalty to Christ so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now we're going to consider something here in this passage that is extraordinary in that it is one of the great backstories of the story of the drama of redemption through the Bible. And that is, God delights in taking the weak things of this world and confounding the world by it. It's might, it's power, it's wisdom. Now let's go back through the passage and I'm going to walk you through each of these. There are, I have a total, at least as I have laid them out, I see five of these movements and statements and principles. You may see others, but I'm going to walk us through it. And come to a conclusion that gets quite personal in relation to something that we're attempting to uh, ramp up here at Baraka. Well, let's look at the first. I would summarize verse 7 with this topic. You have a blank sheet. I'm doing it a little differently now. No blanks to fill in, just the big one. You have this, that jars of clay possess the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The treasure of which he speaks is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You saw that up. If you just look up in verse uh, six, you can see this: that in the new birth, which he's describing, when that light shone, when he quoted from what Genesis one three, and he spoke, and it was light. I read the Paul's, I read Luke's account of Paul's conversion, because I think that it had to be in Paul's mind when he wrote this. That moment when he was converted, that light became the dominating moment, dominated the moment and his transformation. What happened? The new birth, which I think occurred somewhere in there. I mean, you know, look, Paul was not saved in a vacuum. Say, there was nobody standing giving a gospel message right there at the corner of Damascus and Jerusalem streets. But that what he, he, we know that he heard the sermon that Stephen preached in Acts in chapter 7. He was there. As a matter of fact, it says that he was standing on the fringes and he was holding the cloaks while they proceeded to take up stones and kill Stephen. So the Apostle Paul was acquainted with the gospel. But he says, and we'll say later on in, in another way in the end of chapter 4, that there was a veil over his eyes. But once that's pulled back, something extraordinary happens and the light resulted there the result the light that he used the terminology here that is the work of regeneration now what is regeneration i'm going to rehearse a couple of things that i said last week look at his language it's light that shone and he's focused already upon the fact that he's acknowledged believed on the lord jesus christ what's that mean Kurios and Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, and Christ, Messiah. Regeneration is that instantaneous. It happens in a nanosecond where a supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. It's like as Justin and uh, that... Uh, well, uh, Eric was drafting on that in the story in John 12 and the, the Lazarus come forth and all it took was that word to break through the deadness of that tomb and Lazarus came to life. That's the perfect picture of what happens in regeneration is that God speaks into the darkness of our own dead hearts, the cold damp dead darkness and immediately Something happens, we're given spiritual life. Our desires are reoriented, a desire toward God. Our mind, suddenly a light begins to come on in the mind to begin to understand and put together truth. And that's the beginning. Actually, I'm only giving you a teaser here. Francis, not Francis Schaeffer, but Louis Sperry Schaeffer in his uh, systematic theology, he's known for Uh, listing, I think it was, 32 things that happened at the moment that you came to Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful study when you consider all of that. Did did you realize that when you were converted and born again? Uh, Here, let me, can I pause? And Justin set, he set this uh, uh, tactic up for me this morning. He just had the congregation. I was, really, I was quite good that you popped in the way you did. And to answer to his question, uh, any of you have vivid memories? Now, I don't want to discriminate. If you don't have a vivid memory of your conversion, that doesn't mean you're in, a, in the minor leagues. That's memory of your conversion is not the basis of your conversion. But uh, at least maybe the awareness of somewhere along the line, you became aware that you were a Christian. And uh, But give me, give me uh, briefly... One or two of you, uh, can you remember the, the place, circumstances, just any, anything here? I'm, I'm catching you cold. Any? What? Where was it? I was it? in Norfolk at the Scope Arena, I went forward, and I go again, i Although, much as my chagrin, I thought I committed intellectual suicide, but I know something happened. That night. I assume you came out of there thinking differently. Any remembrance of some of your first thoughts after that and how... else? Uh, my, David? stockbridge Chick-fil-A? Dan, Dan Lee, Lee was... Word, and I did. Wow. I don't think I ever heard that. Know, Dan, they, the oh, thank you, Lord. Uh, do you remember some of the first things Thoughts and uh, just you trying to put things together at that time? A piece of security I felt that, and also I felt like a member, like I belonged at that time. Okay, okay, good, thank you. That's uh, it. Ben? Well, that's, that's good well, I need to cut this off somebody over here heard a voice I think I, was, was it you Chuck or and Randy uh, okay okay one of the first things that you thought or did that corresponded to that to what we, you know now was regeneration uh, well, that time, that, that time my, uh, my mother was dying of cancer and I thought that I had a piece in my heart and I knew that she would truly in heaven because she told me that she, she was saved and she was a believer and I knew that even though it was a bad circumstance that, that things were going to be okay Oh, thank you. This is good. It's refreshing. And so here we are, men and women, blind beggars that we were, the Holy Spirit. Now, you couldn't have put all this together theologically probably at the time if you had taken the theology test uh, five, one hour later. But as time passed and you learned the Scriptures, then you see. well, there was a work of the Spirit that was going on to convince you, like a prosecuting attorney of sin righteousness and judgment to come, sin, unbelief, and what other other sins that fed that unbelief and supported it, and then righteousness that didn't have any of your own, and it was inadequate, any deeds or works, and that it was the righteousness of Christ that was needed to be in, stand in the presence of God accepted. And judgment to come? The horrifying thought and fear. Uh, there's a judgment awaiting those appointed a man wants to die, but after this the judgment. And so the spirit was working, convicting in varying ways, varying ways. But then that lightning strike and regeneration. Now we have our. we try to describe the senses and the sensations, I mean the, the emotions, the thoughts and so and so on. But it it's just it's a mystery, but it's a supernatural work of God. It's so a transformation. Is described in Titus three five, John three and three. Regeneration means to be born from above. You know, this is what Nicodemus, teacher of the law, is says, "What are you talking about?" You'd have probably thought he was a doofus if he had raised his hand and said, "Does that mean I got to go back into my mother's womb?" And he says, "Wait a minute, you are a teacher." Jesus said, "You're a teacher of the law." You got a PhD, a PhD? You teach at the local um, seminary, as it were, and you didn't know this? And so, uh, regeneration, very important. Just a side note here, I don't want to labor this point, um, but we have some friends in our body, in the body of Christ, who insist that because dead people, they say it this way, aren't oh, you dead? Dead in trespasses and sins, so you're incapable of. Believing on your own, which is true, therefore you've got to have a change of heart in order to believe. So therefore, you need to be regenerated, and then you believe. Uh, 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 quite frankly, that kind of thing has never been of help. <laughs> it confuses things. So you got to be a Christian to become a Christian. Just leave it at this. That I think that. that it's, it's, it's a simultaneous work, believe in the work of the Spirit, and God enables us to believe that we can't generate it ourselves, and it's God works to do that. All right, let's go to the second one. in verse. Uh, still in verse 7, jars of clay, all right, regenerated, born again. All right, there's Dave is walking away from the Chick-fil-A. J.K. comes away from that arena that night. Here's Randy. He comes away from that youth ranch, and life is before him. And Ben comes away from that moment where he thought he was rededicating his life and had to get that that uh, strip away, that religious uh, uh, baggage that was in the way. All right, then what? Here's what. Jars of clay, and We can. they represent the rest of us who are born again, are fragile, weak, and unimpressive to the world. The metaphor, a jar of clay, interesting one. Actually, these were clay pots, these using the language here. The word, uh, no mystery in the word itself. It's just describing something that is taken from baked clay. And they would store all kinds of items in these clay pots. I know if you open up your cabinets, I mean, in the first century, you wouldn't have opened up in a cabinet, but you would have gone somewhere. Clay pots would have stored everything from grain to maybe some recent purchases at the marketplace, some fruit, whatever. They also could be some other things that could be stored, liquids. And they were even used as slop jars as well. And uh, just jars of clay, nothing elaborate. One side note here is that you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and discovered, Beth and I visited that spot and looked at those caves down there in what used to be the Qumran uh, settlement village down in the northern part of the Dead Sea. And, you know, that was a major discovery back in the late 40s. And they found some little shepherd kid was out pursuing a sheep and threw a rock up in one of these caves, and he heard something break. and It was one of these clay jars. And further investigation revealed that in these jars for 1,900 years had been stored scrolls, scrolls and copies of various parts of the Old Testament. A huge discovery. So there is the clay pot. Now, what he's saying is by this, then, obviously, that we are weak creatures. And he uses language here. I'm going to get to that in a moment, but he's going to show this great paradox One pastor friend put it this way, God does not want his church to be characterized by outstanding people, but by transformed people. (laughs) That's why, yes, we are transformed, but we are clay pots. We are not impressive to the world. And God delights in confounding human wisdom by his own wisdom. Paul takes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, really works it there. He has to with the Corinthians because they were just, they thought they were the smartest church in the Mediterranean area. We're smart people. We're Greeks. That's, that was the Greek mentality. And they thought that they could, well, it's a longer story. I don't want to get into 1 Corinthians. But they were quite proud of themselves and their openness, their tolerance, and the willing to ask questions and so forth. They just thought they were smart people. And Paul reminded them, he says, look around your congregation do you have a lot of road scholars around here? uh, None in this congregation. Do you have any, how many PhDs and and such do you have in your congregation? And people that would be in a very special category of influence and power, movers and shakers, not many of you, not many, just takes ordinary folks. And he does this transforming work of the spirit of God in the world. The world isn't and it likes to make fun of Christians for this uh, you know it's it's a narrative it's a narrative Christians yeah, we know them they're yeah, they just they they function by faith and not by the rational, not by the mind, because they 're just they've got this wish fulfillment thing and they 're just not as smart as the rest of us. that is an un well often spoken narrative that's out there, so here it is now, I think I'll point out to you. I will, it's not in your notes, you've got a blank sheet. that God likes to use this uh, principle, He demonstrates this principle. Can you name well, Bible quiz, give me a couple of three examples where God, in a conspicuous way, did something or used someone who was not first in the class and or not the best strategy in a situation. He did something, used someone that was in this category of the weak, the limited, and confounding the mighty and doing something extraordinary. Yeah, Sam. Okay, Samson. He was. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he went around. He didn't go around looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know that. Um, okay, come on. Wait. Uh, uh, uh. Well, okay, all right. But he said, hey, I can't speak. He said, okay. God said, all right, get out of the way. Aaron, will, he'll speak for you. You, you, you. I like that because I have that in my notes. Uh, Gideon, <laughs> Gideon, remember what he did? He started out with how many thousands? I forgot, 15,000. So and he gets it down to 300, and then they go in at night, you know, and they break the jars with the food, They use the light to... to They create panic, so he uses 300 to rout an entire army of thousands. Uh, Oh, anyone else? Ah, thank you. I got that one in my notes. I like that one. David and Goliath. We love that story, don't we? And how this little teenage—I say little—I think he was. I think David was—he was an athletic guy. But he was a teenager, inexperienced, and he goes out. And you know that story. Takes him out. Just a clean shot. Zoom. Yeah, he puts him in a position of, of authority, taking him out of a prison. All right, let me hurry to the most. What is the penultimate example of taking that which is considered by the world as nothing, nothing, absolutely the crucifixion, the cross of Christ? Um, To him is the arm of the Lord been revealed. Uh, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root, like on a parched ground. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and rejected men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And one to whom men are not attracted. He was despised and we didn't esteem him. There he was. Who would have thought if you had seen Jesus, use your sanctified imagination. If you had seen Jesus, and you see a crowd over there, and there is, in the middle there is this man who is doing some extraordinary things, what do you think may have been some of your first impression? I, we don't have time to chase your thoughts on this, but first impressions. Well, he looked ordinary, and I will tell you where he looked more than ordinary, but really bad, and that is in that crucifixion itself. This is our king? This is our king? Uh, So it is. Let's go to the third quickly. Number three, verses 8 and 9. Now we've got the four paradoxes. Jars of clay must face the trials of life. Now what Paul does, he gives four contrasting parallels that demonstrate God's power in weakness. In the infinite wisdom of God, he has designed it that we as Christians, guess what, are not protected from life. I don't think I have anyone object to that. (laughs) There will be adversity. And with this adversity, well, so he describes, pressures. Uh, What are we reading? Um, If we're reading through the Bible, we're in Acts right now. I was reading this morning. Hey, that fits. And what Paul had to deal with in Philippi? And he was taken and beaten. And he and Barnabas Silas were flogged. I mean, 39 stripes thrown in prison. And then there is going into Corinth and said, don't, don't Paul, God told Paul, don't worry. You'll be all right. I'm going to protect you. Risking their lives. Confusion. He describes that, says. But you notice the, the way he works the paradoxes. He says, all right, these things will come. But Paul says, these things, these t- despair, for example, hopelessness, is not necessarily a, it's it's not a, it doesn't follow. It's a non sequitur to say that if this happens, like persecution, what is the consequence if you don't handle it right? What does he say? I don't have my, what, what's he say there? Persecuted, I didn't write it here. Persecuted, but not what? Not forsaken, thank you. Well, he presents these, and here's what I want you to notice. He lays this out, and they're quite evident as you go through the book of Acts. You can see Paul and his, uh, his partners in the gospel work uh, go through these terrible, terrible life-risking situations, and some lose their lives. But he said it's not inevitable that you have to go to the point where you're forsaken or that you fall into despair. Now, I want to add this. And I want to go to verse, the, the next one, number 4, and ask this question. Number 4, in verse 10. Jars of clay experience suffering because of their identification with Jesus. Here's my question. What is the difference, what is it that makes the difference between in triumphing over and through human weakness and not triumphing? The point is making with this, it's not automatic that, if you're persecuted, you won't be forsaken. Or you won't go through the trauma of feeling forsaken. Uh, what is it? Somebody read those four knots for me there. I should have had them out in front of me here, but, well, I got the text, if save us time. Hold on. Sure, I got it. All right. Not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. All right. Now, is it automatic that if you and i go through adversity that then the the worst the worst possible outcome would take place no it's it, it doesn't mean that it has to happen it's not but it's not and now could it happen to christians could a christian get caught up in persecution and just become hopeless well he says in persecution persecu- uh, excuse me not driven perplexed but not driven to despair that is you can be confused why is this happening Why am I in this season where everything is falling apart and it just doesn't seem to fit? Perplexed, but not in despair, hopeless. Can a Christian fall into hopelessness and not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not what we welcome and invite, but he's saying it is not automatic. So the question is, and that's what sets us up for verses 11 and 12, what makes the difference in how you handle suffering? Now, I want to run something by you. Uh, two things, and here's the first. is I want to take you through, since it's not automatic, that you will triumph in persecution, be confused and handle it right, um, and so forth, to be under pressure. What is, may I mention a few things that... I'll be quick here. Let me mention a few... Th- unbiblical responses to the crisis of affliction suffering wrong ways you don't want to go here first of all Christians are not to be surprised we know that from 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 12 don't be surprised now new Christians can be but if you're along in the faith and you still get shocked by why is this happening why is this happening to me I, I don't get it. It doesn't figure. Okay. Problem. The Christian should not become angry with God when he suffers loss. That's kind of become kind of fashionable uh, in our day to... Was that you saying that this morning, Justin? Yes, okay. I got to echo on that. Yes, you were putting your uh, finger on the pulse here of, of our culture. That even some Christians have picked this up. Like this is sort of... Uh, healthy, to get mad at God, like Jonah did. Jonah got got angry at God. God shut his air conditioner off, and Cecil wasn't there to come and put in a new one. (laughs) And, And what happened? He gets mad. He pouts. And I'll tell you another example. Asaph in Psalm 73. Ooh, he starts out by saying God is good, but I want to tell you, that's his conclusion. He had, he got bitter. He really got bitter when he looked around and saw that people who were not living righteously were just living out on the hog and all was well. They were celebrated in fame and fortune and good health and, and Asaph had a hard time processing that. That's in, so um, let me mention just I'll mention one more to say we're running out of time. That the Christian should not doubt God's love and feel sorry for himself or herself when some disappointment comes. Malachi chapter 1, verse 12. Jeremiah 20, verses 1 through 18. Oh, Jeremiah, he really can into the pits on this one. And Lamentation 3.33, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. God is not happy when we're suffering he is not and it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us all right, i've got about nine of these all together but i just wanted to run that there are wrong responses and uh, we're going to come back around to that a little bit later on all right let's uh let's move forward number four i've stressed is the fact that jars of clay experience suffering because of their identification with christ The death of Jesus, which he mentions here, look at verses 11 and 12, very important. Verses 11 and 12 is that the death of Jesus, in order to have the life of Jesus, there's got to be the death of Jesus in this sense. That if anyone wishes to come after me, this is talking about discipleship. I'm not telling you how to be saved at this point. I'm telling you how to follow Christ. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So there is a daily dying to oneself. It is taking one's desires and putting them on pleasing Christ more than any other desire that we have. In other words, we've got decisions to make. If you want to stay away from despair, hopelessness, and feeling confusion to the point where you can't put things together, and you're so disoriented you can't see top from bottom and suffering has just got you in a nosedive, and disappointments and so forth, have gotten you all out of sorts, then how do you think about the difficulties that you face? Do you want the life of Jesus to be seen in these difficulties? Is that our desire? Do you want to be like Christ when you're going through these hard times, losses, pain, suffering? This is the critical question. See, I've got... To take the supernatural work of God, understand, it, take it and they just understand it and see what the significance is that these disasters, difficulties, hardships, I must see the circumstances of life here i 've got this in red in my notes. I must see the circumstances of life as god 's way of making it possible to others to see Jesus Christ living in me. And it doesn't it, good times won 't do it. I 'm all for good times, bad times, hardships, severe, severe pain and suffering, loss, living. I'm, we think our brothers and sisters in Christ. How, O oh Lord, would you want us, want you and me to let others see the life of Christ? Well, let me go to the number eleven verses eleven and twelve and the fifth one. Jars of clay have privilege the privilege of demonstrating the death and life of Jesus Christ. Just drafting on the statement that I previously gave. That what he's describing here then is this, that what we have is the opportunity so that death working in us, but life in you, which he says, he means simply that all the risk, he says, he took, verse 11, all the risk that Paul took, all the dangers he faced, All the efforts he expended, all the ever-growing weaker as he gets older, that's part of it, were for the Corinthian believers. Saying, look, and laying down my life. This is part of the way he defends himself. Look what I've done. God's grace through me to show you strength in weakness. So there you have it. Are we looking at life this way? Are we willing to take the necessary risk for others to get the gospel out? It could be little risk, if you will, like living, working, laughing, crying alongside of others. may not seem like the biggest moment ever. I'm thinking of our side-by-side conference about a year ago. And how then should we live? Let me submit this to you in closing. I want to give you two or three statements in conclusion as to how then we should live in view of this possibility, the necessity of Christ being seen in us through our adversity. First of all, I think it's important that we realize of going through and rehearsing the gospel periodically. Rehearse the gospel. It means seeing ourselves as one who's been pursued by God. Who was I when God pursued me? I was a rebel against God. I was seriously damaged. I was blind. I was deaf. I was dead. I did not want God. I had no righteousness of my own. I did not understand. My throat was an open grave. My mouth was deceived. deceived. My mouth was filled with bitterness and cursing. I did not know the way of peace. I had no fear of God. Paul lays all this out in Romans 3. But what did God do? Pursued me, came to me, and gave me that new life in Christ, not because I merited it, but he did that in that instantaneous lightning strike of regeneration. Therefore, and this is where I conclude, I am weak, but Christ is strong. As Christ lives in me, others can see Christ. He takes my limitations my faults, my weaknesses, my inadequacies, and uses me anyway. This is where all God's people say, thank you, Lord. Do I see it that way? And so what I must do then, if I'm going to be consistent and live and work out this, having others see Christ, is no matter what season of life, no matter what the difficulties, to be like to others, others to savor and know Christ. I came across something. I like. You like birds. I like birds. You like wrens. I love wrens. The Carolina wren. I want to give you a little something. I want to get us all to be in the order, uh, being in the order of the Carolina wren. You probably knew this. This is from Charles Seabrook's Section. This is this morning's, yesterday's paper. As the rising sun's rays streamed through my bedroom window the other morning, signaling a new day, a Carolina wren burst into song from somewhere in the yard. It was a comforting sound for November. And interesting, while I was reading this, I cut this out from yesterday's paper, but I was reading it, and right outside my window was one of these wrens, you know, just a happy little sound. While most of our, our songbirds, so full of pep and song in spring and summer, are quiet this time of year. The Carolina Wren is one of the few species that will sing at almost any hour of the day during all seasons, including fall and winter. Some birds, such as the cardinal, will begin singing in early February as the sun's rays start slanting towards spring. But in the dead of winter, none of our birds will sing as enthusiastically as the Carolina Wren. On a, here's a, he quotes here from uh, Thomas Burley, who was a well-known um, ornithologist. He said, on a cold winter day, its song is a welcome sound when heard coming from an otherwise drab and uninviting landscape. (laughs) The song has been described as a loud, ringing, repetitious refrain that sounds something like, tea kettle, tea kettle, tea kettle, tea. The female often chatter, not like this little line here, I'll let you do with it what you will. The female often chatters while her mate sings. And you can, you can hear the song almost anywhere in Georgia. The Carolina, well, he tells where the Carolina Wren can be found and how uh, although the Carolina Wren seems to enjoy the proximity of people, it tends to be shy and hidden. If you follow its exuberant song, though, you may get a glimpse of its rich cinnamon plumage White eyebrow stripe and long upward cocktail, as he just a picture of one here. You know why I read that? I say, Lord, you will enable us to be like a wren in any season of life, especially in the drab, cold, dreary time of winter that we'll be singing the song of redemption in our lives no matter what we're going through. And you know, you can have one of these times when the landscape is drab and dreary and it can be in the summer if if you're going through chemo and you're throwing up your guts and if you've got migraine headaches that just knock you down for days at a time and all of the aches and pains and frailties and limitations. But God wants to use us as his people. I submit to you that in Baraka, What we're attempting to do, you know, in our 2020, in the point on evangelism, and it says, and our goal, 2016 is about up, so let me read what it says for 2017. It says, integrate personal evangelism into church ministries. Host a spring personal evangelism conference. Conduct personal evangelism training. We're talking about that. Expand availability of personal evangelism resources to the congregation. Lord, make us a congregation of gospel singing wrens in all the seasons of life, no matter how much adversity we're facing and how difficult it is, but that God will make us vibrant and melodious with the song of the gospel for all to hear at Barak in the coming year. Let's pray that uh, we can find our niche, our place. You know, God will take your gift, your personality. We'll take this and use it for the gospel's sake in this coming year. I was glad to hear, uh, was it Davey, you were mentioning you were praying for someone you met in the parking lot, this lady who's homeless, and uh, you and and Sky talked with her, and I thought, Thank God he took, he paused and they stopped and talked to this lady. What's God have for Barack this coming year? I'd like for us to see more of these kinds of things, where we are not bragamonies, but we encourage one another with this hope that we have in Christ, and that we're all year round Carolina wrens for the gospel's sake. So help us, Lord. So help us. And Lord, with our frailties, our limitations sometimes our sleepless nights, our fear, Lord, breaking into a cold sweat and stumbling over our words, and we wonder if we were effective in witnessing. Thank you, Lord, you're greater than we are, and you will do, use us, use us for your glory, and open up, open up opportunities this week even, for the gospel's sake. And Lord, I pray for our church in this 2020 vision that we'll just Burst over our banks here with evangelism, seeking to reach the lost here and abroad in Christ's name. Amen.